It's philosophy talk. I'll try to speak uh, in a jargon-free language. Derrida and deconstruction. Deconstruction is an, is an ugly and difficult word. What is it to deconstruct the text? Deconstruction is to analyze all the hidden assumptions implied in the philosophical or the, the ethical or the political use of the, the concept of subjects. If literary and philosophical texts are full of contradictions and devoid of absolute meaning or truth, why bother even reading them? When you deconstruct anything, you do not destroy the legitimacy of what you're deconstructing. Can we deconstruct deconstructionism? Our guest is Joshua Cate, author of Fielding Derrida, Philosophy, Literary Criticism, History, and the Work of Deconstruction. Deconstruction doesn't mean dissolution. Derrida and Deconstruction, coming up on Philosophy Talk. After the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KAOW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, Derrida and Deconstruction. Jacques Derrida was one of the most widely revered and also one of the most widely reviled thinkers of our time. Yeah, people in a variety of disciplines, especially literary disciplines, view him as an absolutely seminal figure. He's been called one of the three most important philosophers of the 20th century right up there in this person's estimation with Heidegger and Wittgenstein, John. But many philosophers would strongly disagree with that assessment, especially philosophers like you and me, Ken, who belong to the Anglo-American tradition. Yeah, I'm afraid that in our circles, Derrida is widely regarded as something of a fraud and a charlatan, and people blame him for what they see as the really sorry state of literary studies. But on this program, Ken, we question everything, even our own prejudices. So we should ask ourselves whether it's just those prejudices that keep us from appreciating Derrida. Well, I certainly wouldn't say that it's just prejudice. I mean, for a guy who was deeply concerned about the nature of written language and the interpretation of written language, Derrida is awfully hard to read and interpret. Harder than Kant or Hegel? Neither of those guys is easy to read or interpret, but nobody dismisses them as mere frauds and charlatans. Well, maybe that's just the difference between German obscurity and French obscurity, John. I mean, German obscurity can seem, well, profound, but French obscurity is frankly just irritating. Well, uh, that's an insight, but there could be a deeper reason why Anglo-American philosophers often find Derrida so off-putting. And what would that be? Well, his work purports to undermine what we do, the foundation of, of our lives and our profession. Well, I guess you're talking about what he calls the logocentrism of Western philosophy. We're all so logocentric, and Derrida claims to have moved us beyond it, beyond philosophy to post-philosophy. Right. We anal-retentive, logo-phallocentric philosophers privileged logos. That is, meaning, reason, spirit. And we take speech to be prior in the order of signification to writing, and that's really bad. Yeah, that's supposed to be really a, a consequential move, because somehow, by privileging speech over writing, logophallocentric philosophy privileges presence over absence, and hankers after transcendental signifies that transcend all signifiers, and meanings that transcend all signs. 
Well, I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds terrible. Yeah, and it's all connected up to the metaphysics of presence, which is, some people tell me, supposed to be oppressive because it excludes, it marginalizes, fails to acknowledge what's absent, what's different, what's other. I mean, think in a concrete way of all the voices that the Western philosophical canon has typically excluded, the voices of women, blacks, gays, the poor, and on and on. By glorifying what's there, I take it the Western canon is fails to acknowledge what's not there, what's absent. Well, that seems like a valid insight. I mean, you know, it, it is important to look at what's not there. But how through the innocent act of taking the spoken word to be somehow prior to the written word, I mean, it must have come first. How, how do we do all that nasty stuff? That, that seems pretty astounding. Well, it's a long story about how that works, John, but fortunately, you know, there's a way out. We, we execute a sort of reversal. We privilege text that is writing over speech because I take it the point is that unlike speech, the text is constituted as much by what it excludes as by what it includes, by absence as much as presence. Because look, if the text doesn't speak about women, blacks, or gays, for example, it thereby represents them. So its silence on something is a representation of what's not there. So a text can do that. So, and I, I guess the way we get at absence via the text is by deconstructing it. You mean like ripping it down, tearing it apart, sort of like tearing down a building? Uh, sort of, but not exactly. To deconstruct a text is to expose the contradictions and oppositions upon which it's founded, which it disguises and refuses to acknowledge, I suppose, make the absences somehow present. To deconstruct a text is to expose it as devoid of fixed meaning, as irreducibly complex, unstable, and even impossible. Wow. John, that's a mouthful that you just said. I'm going to need some help getting my brain around all that. Well, me too, actually. But help is on the way in the form of our guest, Joshua Cates, author of Fielding Derrida, Philosophy, Literary Criticism, History, and the Work of Deconstruction. Now, Ken, because we're on the radio, we're going to have to talk to him. Uh, even though that seems to be the source of all these problems. Yeah, but we'll treat them as a text. We'll treat them as a text. And we want the help of our undeconstructed audience as well. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Angela Kilduff, gets an earful of opinions about the controversial legacy of Derrida. She files this report. Jacques Derrida is the father of deconstruction and a very divisive thinker. To find out whether he was a fraud or a revolutionary, I asked prominent academics about his significance. My name is John Searle, and I teach philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, some authors are significant not because they solve uh, philosophical confusions, but because they are examples of the confusion. And Derrida is interesting to us because he was hopelessly confused as a philosopher. Professional philosophers don't pay much attention to Derrida, but he has been influential in subjects like literary theory uh, and comparative literature because uh, he makes very uh, pretentious claims of a quasi-philosophical sort, and he has no backing for the claims, but it does impress people who don't know anything about philosophy. Uh, my name is Ellen Armour. I'm the E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Professor of Feminist Theology at Vanderbilt Divinity School. I think Derrida's legacy is um, obviously remains to be seen in some respects, but I hope that one legacy will be that he has helped us understand just how complicated and interconnected um, all kinds of issues are. 
I think part of the difficulty that surrounded Derrida's initial reception is that his work came in through literary theory and not through philosophy, and that shaped a certain kind of way of reading his work. A lot of that was really rich and productive, certainly um, in those early decades for literary scholars, but, um, but it also made him somewhat suspicious in the eyes of some philosophers and people who engage philosophy. I really think that the, the lasting legacy is that he took the language of the history of philosophy into many fields, uh, the field of human rights and other fields like that. I'm uh, Peter Krupp, and I'm an associate professor of film and media studies, visual studies, English, and dramatics at UC Irvine. He has really, I think, made philosophy um, a big thing in fields as different as architecture and planning, art history, anthropology, film studies, literature, sociology, the history of science, um, and perhaps nowhere more uh, than the history of technology in his thinking through the history of philosophy about uh, communication, about misunderstandings, about interpretation, and about different uh, technologies of, uh, of uh, communication. My name is Ursula Heisa. I'm a professor of English and director of the Modern Thought and Literature program at Stanford. The general legacy, I would say, mostly consists of a certain mode of inquiry, a particular analytical approach. So you approach a concept or a particular cultural or political configuration in terms of what it excludes or what it talks about only to relegate it outside of itself and say, this is not us. Um, and the Derridean move would consist of showing that this outside, this supplement, is in fact precisely the foundation of either the concept or of a particular cultural or political condition or configuration. And some people were very, very cutting about their critique of Derrida. They said, well, look, I mean, whatever is right in his philosophy has been said before, and then the rest is wrong and expressed obscurely. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Angela Kilda. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.